Two weeks to go until opening day, and we welcome you into the 51st edition of the Minor League Baseball Podcast, the show before the show. Hi, everybody. I'm Tyler Mon in Denver, Colorado. In New York City is Sam Dykstra. Welcome back, Sam. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Tyler? Good. I'm good. It's uh, We're finally counting down spring training days in that you can tell everybody's getting annoyed with spring training. Like, we've hit that when the Adam LaRoche story went on for a week. You could tell we had hit that point in spring training where everybody was like, it should just be opening day, like, tomorrow. Yeah, and it's also hitting that point where we're all constantly debating with ourselves whether spring training results matter. Yeah, yeah. And we were just like, this guy's having a great spring, and I don't know how to feel about it. <laughs> and nobody knows what that means in the long run. Yeah, yeah. I, I typically just say, don't worry about it. Don't think anything about it. Um, they can they can sometimes show like somebody's done something differently with their swing or something like that. But especially for pitchers, if they're having a really good spring or a really bad spring, just don't don't even think about it. We'll, we'll really start sense. worrying about things on May 1st. Yeah, yeah. So with that, uh, we only have a couple of these episodes to get to you before we can actually start start talking about games that do matter, which is a whole lot of fun for all of us. And let's kick things off. Three Strikes for episode number 51 of the show before the show podcast. The week's big story on MILB.com is Sam Dykstra's overall farm system rankings. We've run you through under 21 talent, top pitching prospects, depth, top uh, position player prospect depth. Sam Farm system overall rankings. I would imagine this is a tough one to compile because you went 30 through one in a countdown of all 30 major league organizations. MLB.com released their top 10, but you went the full bore. Uh, what was it like getting this whole thing thrown together? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of just looking at uh, you mentioned depth. I mean, that's what a lot of it is for me is what is the depth of an organization, but also what is their top, top talent? I mean, a lot of these organizations, you know, you like to look one through 30, um, you know, w- what they have for prospects. But normally, you know, you're only churning out maybe four or five major leaguers from that group of 30, um, four or five regular major leaguers if you're lucky. Um, so it, it comes down to, you know, the first thing I, I look at is is top talent. Um, who has a lot of top 100 guys, a lot of top 50 guys. That kind of sets it up as its own thing. And then how it gets kind of moved around in there is who who has a deeper system than other systems. And then it kind of shakes it out out the way it does. Um, Everybody has their own opinions and they're, they're welcome to them. I mean, this is not definitive. This is the way I kind of shake it out, but um, yeah, you know, going through it, it it really came down for me to, there are two of the best systems in the game right now. There it's the top two and pretty much everybody else. Uh, It's between the Dodgers and the Braves. Um, I prefer the Dodgers just because I think they have a particularly deeper system. They just have pretty much everything you could want in a system. Um, part of that is just buying international free agents, you know, getting deciding they were going to go above and beyond, you know, their pool allotment last year and their international pool. Um, so they got a lot of good talent that way. They've decided to trade for some guys. They made that they got involved in the Todd Frazier deal. Really like what they got back in that. And they've obviously just developed guys really well. I mean, you look at their top three prospects are Corey Seager, Julio Urias, and Jose De Leon, who are all farm-grown talent. Um, so I, I think the Dodgers really separate themselves there. But the Braves are, are building, you know, if not the uh, most talented farm system in the game right now, the the number two, which is where I have them. Um, you talk about a rebuild, building a farm system through trades. You know, looking at who they picked up, they got Aaron Blair and Nancy Swanson from the D-backs. They got Sean Newcomb and Chris Ellis from the 
uh, Angels. They got Tyrell Jenkins from the Cardinals a couple of years ago. Uh, so much of their system is just what they're acquiring right now, and they're doing it the right way. Um, if if you're looking to rebuild the system, that this is the blueprint. Um, so for me, it's just those top two, and then everybody else. That's everything else kind of fell into place from there. The depth of the top level systems in really really high quality talent seems like it separates itself um pretty cleanly from the lower level systems is that kind of what you saw from the top 10 top 12 uh as it relates to how good their talent is and how much of that has versus the back half it's not like a gradual fall off like it seems like there's a pretty big discrepancy yeah i, I kind of see it as a kind of tiered system here um so i mentioned the top two and then it kind of goes three to 12 i think is that next tier so that's the twins the rockies the rangers the red sox phillies pirates astros uh, Nationals, Brewers, and Reds. All of those are what I would describe good systems. Those are good to great systems even. Um, they're certainly desirable. I think those are systems in which you build um, good major league clubs. And then it, there is a drop-off between the Reds and the Rays at, at number 13. Uh, the Rays obviously have some nice pieces, particularly in pitching, um, between Blake Snell and Tyler Garrieri and uh, Brent Honeywell and even Jacob Faria. But they just don't have that depth that I think some of the other systems do. Um, the Cubs are kind of surprised at number 14. I think for some people, uh, after they graduated so much talent last year, they have talent again, but it, I, I don't think it's that tip-top talent, nor is it particularly deep as it used to be. Um, so, yeah, I think I think depth has a lot to do with it. You know, Not only how is your best prospect, but how is your number 10 prospect versus other, other systems. Um, that's kind of how it usually shakes out. Because some of these... You know, they like the Indians, for example, look really, really good at the top with Bradley Zimmer, um, Bobby Bradley, Clint Frazier. And then the, there's just such a drop off from there um, that I, that's why I have them at, at number 16, which I guess would technically be below average. Still a lot to like in that system, but overall um, not not on your upper half. Did anybody stand out to you in the teams that were toward the back end of this ranking just from either where they are in relation to maybe their perception of their talent or and how they've fallen off because the Baltimore Orioles come in at number 27 and if you said that about that system three four years ago I don't think anybody would have believed you the de the the really high level high graded talent that they had the end of 2013 top prospects were Kevin Gosman Dylan Bundy Eduardo Rodriguez Hunter Harvey and Jonathan Scope that was their top five and you had seen already two pretty proven big league commodities in Gosman and Bundy there. Bundy obviously has fallen off. Rodriguez now out of the system. Harvey, some injury issues. So you see how quickly this can change. Anybody else stand out to you in that regard? Yeah, the, actually, you mentioned actually two s steps ahead of them. The Orioles were 27. I put the Giants at number 25. And I, I feel like I'm personally underrating the Giants, but I, I really couldn't put them any any higher than that. I couldn't justify doing it. Um, but the Giants, just they churn out this – major league talent year in and year out of guys who you just don't think, you know, they're not going to necessarily rank high on prospect lists, but they end up being solid major leaguers. I mean, you look at Matt Duffy last year, uh, he's turned into their third baseman of the future, replaced Pablo Sandoval, was a better third baseman than Pablo Sandoval, was not necessarily a tip-top prospect. Um, so now, you know, they have Christian Arroyo and just what's left is a series of arms, um, all of which are at the higher levels right now, but none of them are, are necessarily top 100 guys, guys to get really, really excited about it if they were in other organizations. But because it's the Giants, 
I have higher faith in that they'll turn into major leaguers or impact major leaguers. Um, so just looking at the way the system is, is right now, it's the 25th best system in baseball, I believe. But if they were to outperform that range, if we're looking back at this in five years and saying, you know, how did they turn the 25th best system into having, you know, three, four starters and Christian Orio, a, a really good shortstop, it wouldn't surprise me. I just, I have to look at it right now, the snapshot of what the Giants have, and I, that's where they are. But it, again, it wouldn't surprise me if they, if they beat that expectation. I talked with Giants farm director Shane Turner when I was in Arizona a couple weeks ago, and it was one of the most fascinating interviews I've ever had with the player development guy, just in the way he explained things. But one thing that he said, which I thought was really, really insightful, is he said, yeah, I mean, we're obviously proud of the guys that we send to the big leagues and who graduates and who does well, but we also know how quickly that can change. And the quote that really resonated with me was he said, we won the World Series in 2012. In 2013, the big league team gets ravaged by injuries, and we did not have the talent at the minor league level to send up as reinforcements to continue playing at the level we had played the year before. And I didn't sleep at all in 2013. And that was, to me, that's the level that those guys expect. And the Giants have been able to do that in the years where they've been really successful but in the years where they haven't, it's been because they have kind of a thinner margin for error, I think, than maybe what their success portends about them. And that really struck me as being very insightful that you know kind of what the system is and what it needs to be. And when it's not there, it makes you ever so conscious going forward of what you need to do to ensure that it will be there the next time that you need something like they needed a few years ago when they were really racked by injuries at the major league level. Yeah, and I, and I think they do have some pieces now that could – potentially help them this year you know you don't wish injury on anybody and I don't think there's a heck of a lot of room in that rotation right now but Clayton Blackburn is a guy who really really did well at the AAA level last year looks like he's ready for for you know at least a major league tryout even if he doesn't have that tools set that makes you think he's going to be a dominant you know number three starter or above um, he certainly has good command so they do have the pieces in the system that I think if they were to be wrecked by injuries this year or something they could compete in the NL West. I, it's just, it's not anybody who's going to come up and you're going to point to and say, yes, that person is a very, very good toolsy player. Um, the, the closest thing they had to that in the system, I think is Lucius Fox um, who, you know, Batman puns aside is very fast and, you know, could be an exciting one to watch, but he, you know, hasn't played full season ball yet. So, you know, they just don't have that guy who's going to, I think is going to make you force force yourself to sit down and watch this player because they're going to excite you. Um, they could have some pieces they can plug in, but it's not going to be. Uh, I don't think they're going to have a rookie of the year candidate this year. But I didn't think that last year. And Matt Duffy, you know, if if not for Chris Bryant, could have been the rookie of the year last year in the NL. And congratulations to the 2016 World Series champion San Francisco Giants because even year. Uh, <laughs> Sam, the systems that are beyond that first real elite group of talent for strike two who do you think can make a jump in 2016 2017 and beyond to get into that discussion going into next year of who now has separated themselves as being one of those upper echelon upper tier levels yeah so i i said it's kind of the top 12 and then everybody else but i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about the reds a little bit who are right on that line there at number 12 um you know we talked about the reds a lot in terms of a, a rebuilding team and a rebuilding franchise what they've done to their farm system this year, it kind of used to just be Robert Stevenson and Jesse Winker 
and then kind of hope that they would develop somebody else. Um, that's what it's been like since Billy Hamilton graduated. And so they, they've gone through some kind of down years, but now, you know, Stevenson looked much better last year than I think he had in other years. Winker certainly had a great second half last year. So they've kind of built their stocks back into top 40 prospects. Then what they added, uh, both at the trade deadline and the, in this off season, you know, picking up Cody Reed, um, from the Royals and I, I we talked before about spring training results and kind of how to temper those, but the reports you hear on Cody Reed stuff, I mean, they, they were really considering him for the rotation. I think um, making that jump straight from double a to the majors. Uh, I know Joey Votto in particular was really, really excited to, to see him and go against him in camp. So Cody Reed seems like a fantastic pickup, not just a guy who was a one-year wonder made a big jump last year. Um, Jose Peraza is another guy who, you know, they got from from the Dodgers in that Todd Frazier three-team deal. He's a top 100 prospect, a lot of speed, could make it for an intriguing top-of-the-lineup option. Um, you know, has to kind of figure out where they're going to play him. But the, the system is already just so much more exciting than it was before. And with Eric Jagailo, Rookie Davis, I think Tyler Stevenson is ready for a, a jump this year after being taken in the first round last year as a catcher. Um, if, if things kind of go well for them this year, they have the talent, I think, to make a little bit of a jump. The problem is what could happen is that they could make a jump. They are in a rebuilding year and all these guys get pushed to the majors. I mean, we're looking at potentially next year, Stevenson and Winker graduating and no, no longer be, being considered prospects. Same thing for Reed. Um, Peraza already has major league service time under his belt, is, is very close to graduating himself. So I but the position they're putting themselves in, you know, maybe their players at the deadline again, they can add even more talent. It wouldn't surprise me at all if the Reds continue down this path, continue making solid moves, um, some solid tweaks to their farm system, becoming a top 10 system, jumping from outside that group into the, the top 10 by this time next year. I think there are a handful of systems like that. Um, and there are so many systems that are caught in one of those flux stages where you don't really know what the major league product is going to be and the major league product dictates what the minor league product is going to be one of the systems that i think it's worth keeping an eye on is uh number 21 on your rankings that's the san diego padres and the reason i say that is the padres obviously went through the weirdest end of 2014 and 2015 of any team in the big leagues and maybe any team in sports, the way that they ended 2014, making a trade seems like every day for a major league all-star or former major league all-star totally reshaped the major league lineup uh, and did that at the expense of what was at one time, a very, very deep minor league system. Uh, but coming into 2016, that system is rejuvenated. I mean, that would have been a bottom five type of system if not for the deal that sent Craig Kimbrell to Boston and really rebuilt a lot of the excitement at the top prospect level for the Padres um, for AJ Preller in that front office. That was what got him that job. That was a guy who was very, very good on the international market, really knew how to evaluate prospects, sign international free agents. He knew what it took at the amateur level to get talent into the system when he was with the Texas Rangers. When he went to the Padres, he changed that whole philosophy, and it was just, let's trade all the prospects for proven major league commodities, throw them all out there. That's got to get us to the playoffs, right? That didn't work. So I think if the Padres go 
through another stretch like they did at the start in middle parts of 2015. And there was, you know, a portion of last year where the Padres were playing pretty good ball, and it looked like they maybe were going to make a late-season run at the playoffs. If they have to go through another sell-off end of the summer, I would not put it past that front office to be able to spin some impressive deals and get themselves back to the upper levels. Maybe they're not going to be a top 10 team, but I think they can really up their stock compared to where they've been. Yeah. You got to, you got to say they, they got quite the haul there in that Kimbrel deal. I mean, that, that surprised, I think everybody in the industry, what they were able to get back for what is essentially, you know, a 60 inning closer, um, a very, very good one, mind you, but giving up, you know, somebody like, Manny Margot and Javier Guerra alone, that would have been a major deal. That's two top 100 prospects for a reliever. Then you throw in Carlos Asuaje and Logan Allen, who could potentially, I think, you know, could be a breakout guy um, as a, as a sturdy left-hander. That's how you rebuild a, a, a farm system. And you were saying before, you know, this was a bottom five team, I think without those guys and they just got so much stronger and then you you've seen what they're willing to do as well in the Rule Five draft, taking four guys. You know, I, I don't. There's no way in heck all four stick, but um, you know they're willing to bet on younger talent. And they're and I'm sure you know if they are uh, at the bottom of that NL West again this year, um, they will be players at the the deadline. And we we've seen what will happen when they do sell. They get a pretty good package back. So uh, yeah, that they'll definitely be a system to watch this year. Don't lose faith, Padres fans. It was. It's always darkest before the dawn, or something. Uh, I don't know what to tell Padres fans after last year. Like, ah, oh, you threw it all out there and it didn't work. I don't know. Keep on trucking. You live in San Diego. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Diego area. How, how bad can things really be? Maybe you're losing yeah. your football team and your baseball team didn't live up to expectations last year, but you live in San Diego. It's fine. Things are um, things are fine. <laughs> strike three. Yesterday, a historic day, not just for the game of baseball, but for uh, the world at large, the United States and Cuba restarting diplomatic ties, obviously a process that's been going on for the better part of the last 18 months or so. Uh, but President Obama yesterday sitting next to Raul Castro at Estadio Latinoamericano in Havana, a beautiful facility built in the 1940s, hosting a major league team for the first time since 1999. There was a great discussion uh, with Major League Commissioner Rob Manfred about what that would mean for baseball on the telecast yesterday. And it's not just the Jose Abreu's and the Aroldis Chapman's and the big names that come over and immediately sign huge deals, make it to the big leagues instantly, and are impact guys. It's far more guys who are going to spend time in the minor leagues, guys who are going through cultural and societal adjustments and personal adjustments like nothing anybody else faces, especially the other Latin players who have some type of contact with Major League Baseball before they have to defect. Um, guys who have sent their lives through human traffickers and have risked life and limb to make it to uh, either a third-party country where they can establish residencies, sign as an international free agent, or defect. Some of them have defected in tournaments in the United States. Very complicated processes to get to the U.S. and play baseball. That now looks like it's in its last throes. And that was one of the things that Rob Manfred said yesterday was it's not acceptable for these guys to have to go through that just to be able to do what they love for a living. So Sam watching that game yesterday and everything that's gone into this over the last year and a half, it's an obviously historic moment. What do you think this means going forward for, for baseball at large and also for what prospects now who come from Cuba, who can sign deals without all this um, immense stress and strain that it puts on their lives. What does that mean for them? What does it mean for the game? 
Yeah, I, I kept coming back to um, you know Marlins ace Jose Fernandez. Uh, when I when I first started here, first really started getting into the minors was actually right around the same time that Fernandez started picking up steam. Um, and I, I remember we were first hearing about his story in going from Cuba to the U.S. Um, you know, he, he was a teenager. He had tried before to leave, um, got caught, and then a, a set. I think he tried up to three times, but on one of the trips. Um, they were on a boat. They were heading towards Florida, and his mom falls out of the boat. He jumps in to go after her. Uh, he's put under house arrest. They finally do leave. He ends up setting up camp in Florida, ends up getting drafted. It's been a really, really good story. But a lot of that, it, there's so many ramifications for this. It, it isn't so simple as, you know, great, now Cuba is open again, and, you know, hopefully it'll be so much easier to get talent from there. We won't have to get defecting guys we can just sign them as if they were out of the dominican or out of venezuela um but a lot of these guys kind of wanted to go away from that regime i mean there are political aspects to this as well um they were escaping that country because of everything that's gone wrong with it and i i don't want to get into the political ramifications of that but there, there is a lot going on there for just the cuban players currently in the game who are trying to escape that country and now we're opening up to it to that. And that, that's what I'm going to kind of look at going forward of, you know, for some of these guys, I think Darren Verona was so happy to be back yesterday, uh, a raised prospect. Uh, he gave guy. a great quote in his interview with Tim Kirchin and said, I never imagined I'd be back here getting a standing ovation from these people as I leave the field and how moved he was by that, which is a really cool thing to see. Yeah. And he, I, I love the bit about him swinging at the first pitch. Um, you know, it was a pop out yeah. to second. And to some of us, that's just, you know, that's a five P in your scorebook. And you move on. But for him, he was like, I was not letting the first pitch I see on this soil again just go by me. You know, I, I had to make contact on that. So cool. And that's such a telling quote. Um, it, it, there's just so many layers of this. You know, I, I, in a perfect world, you know, maybe Cuba would be a democracy. They get to choose their leader that we get to free and everything's open. Um, you know, it, it's not a perfect world in that aspect. There's so much change that still needs to happen. This is the first step of that. You know, we've gone through decades and decades of of no change in relation between the U S and, and Cuba and baseball in Cuba. Um, so hopefully this is the start of something. Um, you know, there, there, we're going to have so many layers. We're going to have to peel back and so much history that's going to have to, it's, it, it is not an easy process. Um, but hopefully, you know, 10, 15 years from now, we're looking at this game, uh, this time in history as a, as a change for not only, uh, our two countries, but the game in general. And, um, yeah, it, it was a big moment yesterday, and it was it was fun to watch. And you hope that for the next generation of Cuban baseball players coming up, there are not the roadblocks that the others have had to break down in order to get here. Because I don't I don't know what the the backroom dealing is like in a diplomatic situation like this, and I don't know how much influence an organization like Major League Baseball could possibly have in that. But what I do know is. Baseball has the ear of the Cuban government and baseball has the ear of the American government in certain ways. So I don't doubt that there are discussions that have gone on because in part of the fact that you see stories like Yasiel Puig, you see stories like uh, like you're talking about with Jose Fernandez. Those things do not go unnoticed. People should not have to go through that in order to do what they are talented at to make a living. And yeah, it's not a perfect world. We're not going to see the situation change overnight in Cuba, but 
the approach that can give those guys an outlet and an opportunity to come over, apply their trade, make a living, help their families out, help their communities out. Uh, I think that's not to be understated, the fact that baseball really has something to do with that. And you see what it can be as a unifying force between two countries. I was, uh, I've been to all the World Baseball Classics um, through the, the first three editions, and I'll be going again in 2017. And people forget in 2006 – there was really a a big discussion in the weeks leading up to that tournament that Cuba would not be involved in the World Baseball Classic because the United States government had not approved the, I think it's a waiver, a special waiver that would have been needed in order for Cuba to take part because in part the champion of that tournament would end up needing uh, or would end up receiving prize money and it would violate the embargo if the national team of Cuba won prize money and then was just allowed to give that money to the government. So a, a backroom deal was basically cut that if the Cubans won, they'd be doing uh, some relief work for Hurricane Katrina survivors in New Orleans with their portion of the money. And that's how it all played out. But that all went on beyond the public eye. And people didn't understand that that's how all of those walls got taken down in order to allow Cuba to participate. So baseball is a big component of this. And that's really, really cool to see Yesterday, you know, President Obama's there cheering a, a sliding catch made by Cuba center fielder then signaling safe when Kevin Kiermeyer scores on a close play at the plate. He's slapping Raul Castro on the arm. That's what sports do for people. And that was really, really incredible to see. Yeah, yeah, no, it was it was definitely an historic moment. Um, and and I wonder what what is that going to mean for the, the WBC? You mentioned that before. Are Cuban players now going to represent right, right. Cuba in the WBC? Are we going to see Yasiel Puig um, don the uniform of his country? I mean, that's – I go back to the political thing. That That's something they have to kind of wrestle with themselves. Yeah. If, if Major League Baseball will allow it, do you want – at the same time you're wearing Cuba across your chest, you're also wearing the Castro regime across your chest. Right. Yeah, they they probably want to see lots of changes going on there. I think Fernandez uh, mentioned that a little bit talking to the press yesterday. But yeah, no, th- this this opens up so many different doors that just that seemed so closed for so long, um, and it, it's nice to see baseball so involved in that. You know, President Obama could have gone to Cuba and just gone on a plane and came back, um, but the fact that baseball was involved, invited to the table, uh, just made it so more so much more. We're so much cooler uh, from our from our uh, vantage point, um, and it, it, it looked like it will will have an effect on our sport, and we'll have to keep a close eye on that. The Cuban national team has been down over the last decade or so because of all the defections. But if all of those guys get to play one day for whether it's a Cuban WBC team, if it's a Cuban Olympic team, if the Olympics get baseball back for the Tokyo Games in 2020, watch out because that team will be ridiculously loaded the defections have ravaged that team over the last decade or so but man if you could put all the best cuban talent in the world back on one field i don't know if anybody's beating that team so keep an eye on that because that'll be a lot of fun to watch going forward as well uh so that puts a, a nice neat little bow on strike three for this week's edition of the show before the show podcast you can find us all over the place by the way head to minor league baseball's official website that's milb.com slash podcast you can find all of our past episodes there you can also find links to download the show through itunes and in your rss feed if that is the way that you access uh your podcast library so you can find all that there give us a rating a review a subscription uh anything and everything else that you uh would like to say about the show before the show podcast and you can get in touch with us anytime podcast at milb.com and uh so 
That'll send us out of three strikes for episode number 51. Our guest this week is somebody we are very excited to talk to because we've been fortunate enough on the show so far to talk with one trailblazing uh, female uh, pillar really now of the baseball community in Justine Siegel and another one who is breaking through is Rachel Balkovec who is the Latin American strength and conditioning coordinator for the Houston Astros organization Rachel's got a really interesting story is how she got into baseball former college softball player at the University of New Mexico now working with some of the best athletes in the Astros system and hoping to make that climb through Houston's organization as well Rachel joins the 51st edition of the show before the show podcast next Show before the show podcast continues along from MILB.com. We are headed to the Grapefruit League in the Houston Astros Spring Training Facility, which is a place where we uh, actually have not gotten to go a whole lot so far this spring. But Rachel Balkovec joins us from uh, Kissimmee, Florida, correct? That is correct. Much I'm, better weather uh, down there than on, a whole lot of places. <laughs> yep, I'm standing on field one at the complex. Outside, so if it's a little windy, then I apologize, but I'm working the game tonight, so outside. Well, tell us how it's been going so far. Uh, let's give people some background. You are uh, right now overseeing the Latin American conditioning program in the Astros organization, um, one of, if not the premier system in all minor league baseball, not just from talent, but really from the way this organization has blazed a lot of trails over the last few seasons. Um, what has this spring been like Absolutely. for you? Just kind of tell us about how you got into the Astros system. Um, it's been phenomenal. This is just really uh, a class organization. I'm, I'm proud. I'm definitely proud to be a part of this organization. Um, like you said, obviously they're blazing a trail in a lot of different ways and they, they're doing things a little different here. So it's, it's fun. It's fast paced. It's challenging, uh, which are all things that I really like. And so I think that it's been uh, so far, it's just been a lot of fun is, is the best way to describe it. Um, how did I get linked up with the Astros? I actually, um, I applied for this job. So my title is the Latin American Strength Conditioning Coordinator. And I applied for this exact same job two seasons ago, and I didn't get it. So, which is a great story that I probably don't have time to tell, but I didn't get the job. I wasn't fluent enough at the time. I didn't have enough Spanish um, under my belt. And so uh, at the time, I did not get the job. And so this is kind of like two years in the making for me to come back and have an opportunity to be able to do this after spending two years with the, the Cardinals as the coordinator and getting a little more fluent with my Spanish, a little bit more polished in that area. So that's kind of how that came about. Long story short. Yeah. Well, yeah. Kind of take us through that story a little bit then. How, how did you kind of learn Spanish? How did you kind of get into it and how have the players kind of taken to you so far, you know, being a new person around camp, um, being a non-native <laughs> speaker, what, what is that like? I think it's probably like um, if an elephant were to open its mouth and quack like a duck. <laughs> so people <laughs> people see this white girl, you know, from I'm from Nebraska, from Omaha, and you know I had the normal like high school Spanish, and by the time I entered baseball in 2012, I'd completely forgotten all of it. Um, so it's been a it's been a learning process, but I just I knew right off the bat that that was going to be something I was going to do because for me, I, I knew I wanted to be in professional baseball, and I also knew that that 40 to 50 percent of professional baseball is latin american players and so for me it was a no-brainer it wasn't an option i i had to learn it it was something that just like anything else like i had to learn strength and conditioning that was something that was going to make me better at my job and and allow me to better relate to the players and have them buy in more and so i think you know they, it's kind of funny like again being in a new organization for the first time after three seasons with the cardinals 
that I'm this white chick, and then all of a sudden I open my mouth and start speaking Spanish, and people are like, what? They kind of, you know, so they're turning their heads like, wait, what? Is she saying it? She's speaking Spanish? Shoot. Now I'm going to have to listen to her. <laughs> so, but, but then right after that, it's also a conversa- conversation piece, and I'm going through the same struggle that the players go through learning English. So as much as you wouldn't think that, a, again, a, a, a woman like me from Nebraska has anything in common with a Latin American baseball player, we really do. So I'm teaching them Spanish, and they're teaching me I'm, – I'm teaching them English, they're teaching me Spanish. It's kind of developed – it's a way to further develop the relationship and they're taking, I feel like the Latin players are taking to me really well. Um, and I feel like that's, you know, those are my favorite players to work with. And I feel like they can, they know that, you know, as long as you care about them and that you're invested in their career, they're going to, they're going to eat out of your hand no matter what. So it's going well. Yeah. And once you get over that language barrier and you guys are obviously established those relationships, what is it like being a strength and conditioning coach, you know, especially at the minor league level, a lot of these younger guys coming up, a lot of people kind of look, don't really know what goes on in those backfields and those, you know, in those uh, oh, workout gosh. rooms. Nobody knows. Yeah. Kind of take us through <laughs> it. Then. Knows. Uh, yeah. It's just so funny. Like the major league team is the tip of the iceberg and you could, I, my favorite, I wanted this job. You know, a lot of people say they want to be in the big leagues. They want to work in the big leagues. They want to coach there. But for me, I wanted this job. This is this is a dream come true for me, and I love working with the younger players because you really get a chance to not only affect them physically as a baseball player, but you know, as a as a young man, you know, you get to shape them with discipline, with education, with creating creating good habits for them physically and mentally. You know, working through. I, we find kids when they're 16 years old. So when you see the end pro, end product of your you know your Altuve's in in the big leagues. That started when he was 16 with us. And so it's like you're taking this, this child almost. You kind of take on like a mentoring, a parenting uh, role. And I'm, I don't feel like I, – I, I often say if you told me today that the only thing that I do for the players is get them strong and get them in good condition, I would quit. You know, like that's not, that's not even close to what we do as strength and conditioning coaches. We are definitely – especially at the younger levels, we're definitely serving as – mentors you know and, and parent mother figures father figures brother and sister figures those that's the thing that I really revel in and really enjoy and you know for example today we just had a ceremony for some of our kids that quote-unquote graduated from the English program here and for me that is even that's way more exciting than seeing someone even get to the big leagues because it's not like you're changing them physically or helping them get better skills you're changing their life you know, you're literally changing the course of their life if you can mentor them in that way. And so that's why I really love being a strength and conditioning coach at this, you know, young level, especially with the Latin players. Rachel, you got your start uh, with the Cardinals as an intern a few seasons ago, and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how much uh, I would imagine, you know, once you start applying for jobs after that first internship in any career field, it's always easier because at least you have that experience. You can say, you know, I've done this at this level. But for you to break in at that level, has got to be a lot harder than the average road for somebody. And you've talked about that with MLB.com. Brian McTaggart had a story on you last month. I know Lindsey Baird mm-hmm. did a story uh, a couple of years ago. How difficult was it to get your, your foot in the door for the very first time? You know, what's funny is like the first time around, it, it seems a lot easier than the second time. But um, the first time with the Cardinals, it was like almost a simple process where the Cardinals had called LSU, where I was doing my graduate assistantship. 
and LSU recommended me and they just kind of, they just, they said, they took the leap, you know, they just did it. And so they hired me as an intern and it was a very short, you know, stint. It was like five ish months. I didn't even go to spring training. It was an internship for sure. You know, part-time basis at the end of the season, my contract was up and it was over. So then I left baseball for a year. Well, I didn't leave baseball. I, I often say I didn't leave baseball. Baseball left me. So I left the Cardinals rather. And I moved to Phoenix to start uh, curriculum for a PhD. And I thought, Hey, I've got this great resume. I've got the Cardinals. I've got LSU. I've got, I had moved to the Dominican Republic. I got LSU, as they would say. I was pretty good at Spanish. And I had a nice little base. I was like, this would be a piece of cake. You know, I'll just apply, apply for all the Phoenix AZL jobs out there. And that was not the case. And then I kind of got a dose of reality uh, going to apply for jobs in that case where I applied, for, I applied for eight jobs and basically only heard back from one that then later told me, you know, it's not going to work out because you're a girl. So I, I then heard through the grapevine a bunch, hey, my boss got your resume. It's not going to work, though, and all of these things about just hearing through the grapevine of like, oh, yeah, sorry, I got your resume. It's great, but, you know, the front office doesn't want to hire you. So, so things like that, which were extremely – I don't want to say they were discouraging. They were disappointing, you know, because I was I – don't, I don't really think I was ever discouraged. Like, call it dumb or call it optimistic or whatever you want to call it, but – even though I was hearing those things and I knew that it was going on, I was just like, all right, whatever. Like someone's going to accept me at some point. Someone's going to give me a good opportunity at some point. I was never discouraged. I was just always disappointed that that was the case. So yeah, it was, uh, that was a rough year. 2013 was a definitely rough year personally in a lot of ways, but um, didn't deter me necessarily from, from going after the goal. Yeah, and one thing we read in some of the stories um, about you is that you put your name differently on the resume. Just put Ray instead of Rachel just to <laughs> kind of give it, you know, a, a dual meaning to, to try to get across as a not not somebody else, but just a different name that would come across. Um, but what else did you have yeah. to kind of get do to get over that hump, you know, to get people on people's desks, get your foot in? You know what is – I always say, like, do the – for me, obviously I had to – do a couple of things like that. I didn't have to do that, but, and I also felt bad right after I did it, but I was, to be honest with you, a little desperate probably, but, um, you know, all I always fun. say like, I had to be, I knew as a woman, I had to be undeniable. Like I wanted them to look at my resume and, and say, not to say, well, yeah, she has a good resume, but say, we can't literally cannot go without hiring that woman. Like we need her. And so what I did was like, like I interned at Arizona state two separate times for free. I was a graduate assistant at LSU for a thousand bucks a month. I worked at athletes for performance for free. I uh, did an internship with the fall league. I was making $30 a day. I, you know, I worked in the Dominican Republic for like $50 a day. So I did the things that other people weren't willing to do. And for me, that was a huge part of like, if you're going to break a barrier, you're going to, or if you're going to expect someone to, you know, be a pioneer for you and give you an opportunity when other people won't, then you do have you in, in my mind, you have to beat out the other competition by and far. You have to be head and shoulders above everybody else. And so what did I do to, you know, get, be given the opportunity? I, I wanted to be the best, you know, I'm always going to do that. I mean, I'm never going to leave it to chance that somebody could say, well, you know, it's okay. She, her resume is okay. No, like my resume is going to be the best resume. I didn't learn Spanish for fun. I learned Spanish to get better at my job. 
you know, so I think that's like something that can't be underestimated is, you know, yes, I did things like, okay, I changed my name, but that didn't really get me in the door. In fact, it didn't even work that well. So right. kind of backfired a little bit. Um, so the thing that got me in the door, I think is just me being good at what I do and, and also being better at others than, you know, at, at what we do. And the way to do that was I was going to take the jobs that nobody else wanted to take. I was going to work for free as long as it took. And that's what I did. And now that you are here, we, we kind of, you know, we would kind of be remiss if we didn't ask this one last question. First, first spring with the Astros, Tyler mentioned it before, really young and upcoming system. Uh, who has stood out to you so far in, in your work with the, with the youngsters down there in, in uh, Kiss Me so far? Um, you mean like the young minor leaguers? Yeah, yeah. What players that you've worked with have kind of surprised you or look like they're on the front steps? Oh, gosh. That's a tough question because I'm getting to know so many people. Let's see here. Um, you know, I can't – I will say that I, I'm, like, impressed by, you know, the young guys. I don't even know. Like, the, the names don't mean anything. But I will say the people that I'm impressed by, I'll flip it around because I worked major league camp for the first three weeks I was here and impressed by those young guys coming up. Some of the Latin players like Minaya um, and Gustave, like, I don't know if people are going to know their names or not, but some of the guys who've been in like double A and triple A for the past couple of years, just like class people, um, educated, wanting to learn the, this is speaking specifically towards like the Latin American thing again is um, wanting to learn. Don't speak to me in Spanish. I speak English. Um, just very engaging with their conversation, very uh, professional. Uh, I've been very impressed with, with those players who have been in the system and obviously been, you know, for lack of a better term, they've been raised, they've had the right upbringing here. So that's what I can say with that. Now, I've actually spent, like, less time or maybe equal time with the Marley guys at this point, and there's, like, 150 of them. So there's a couple of guys I have in my mind, but as far as, like, the people I spent the most time around, just definitely those people – those players, the Latin American players that are in double A and triple A and, and probably you might see, you know, this year on, on TV that have really just had a great upbringing here with the Astros and just really showing a high level of professionalism and, you know, being a good example and a leader for the younger players. So that kind of went off topic, but yeah. <laughs> so the crazy thing about the Astros is you can talk about somebody who would be like a top prospect in another system and hardly anybody's heard of them in the Astros system because that's how talented that system is, which is crazy. Right. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Rachel's absolutely. official title with the Astros is Latin America Strength and Conditioning Coach, and you can find out more about Rachel Balkovic at damselinthedugout.com. Really cool website. You can find her story and a lot of really interesting background on what she's doing and kind of working in the game of baseball and what it's like from that perspective. And Rachel, we cannot thank you enough. Uh, best of luck working the game tonight and the rest of the spring and, uh, and on into the summer. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on, guys. You can find Rachel Balkovic on Twitter. She is at Damsel in the Dugout, D-A Dugout. Her website, by the way, is Damsel in the Dugout with a T-H, and you can find her stuff there as well. Big thanks to Rachel, who is the Latin American Strength and Conditioning Coordinator for the Houston Astros organization. Really interesting story and a really interesting uh, conversation to have with somebody who's breaking barriers all over the place in the world of professional baseball. Really, really cool stuff from Florida. So we'll head back into the offices, and Benjamin Hill joins the show for this week's edition of our conversation with Ben. What's going on, Ben? Uh, not much. I haven't broken any barriers lately, but still Any happy to be here. Don't worry. I don't think I've broken a single barrier ever. So 
Rachel on a day, every day that Rachel breaks up, wakes up, she's breaking more barriers than I have, which is really cool for her. Yeah, not so cool for you, man. Step up your game. <laughs> Much bigger downer for me. Uh, this is a big week, though, in in the promo world and the uh, the craziness of 2016 world already. Uh, let's get at the big story first. The Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs um, have been also groundbreakers in a different sense of minor league baseball. They have upped the ante following maybe in the footsteps of arguably the most successful promotion last year uh, of any minor league baseball team. The Lehigh Valley cheesesteaks are on the way. Take us through it. Yeah, as you mentioned last year, the uh, Fresno Grizzlies honored their regional uh, cuisine with Fresno Tacos Night, and they became the tacos for a day. And this year they're going to be tacos uh, throughout every Tuesday home game. Uh, Tacos hats, tacos jerseys. Big success, went viral, nationwide phenomenon. And uh, today, the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs did their version. Or not today, but yesterday. It's all relative. But (laughs) the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs, on June 10th, they're going to do Salute to Philadelphia Night. And the centerpiece of that is they're going to be the Lehigh Valley cheesesteaks for the evening with uh, appropriate cheesesteak jerseys and hats. And there's a social media campaign and a voting campaign around this, whether the hat that the team wears on the field is wit or without onions, um, which is a big thing in the world of cheesesteaks, whether you order it wit or without. So fans have to vote for that. And uh, this was predictably blown up, gone viral. I think they've already sold the merch to something like 40 states. And yes, getting a lot of Fresno Grizzlies, uh, Fresno Tacos comparisons. But I think it's worth noting that when the Fresno Tacos came out last year with that whole promotion – they got in a little Twitter spat with the Iron Pigs who said, well, nice to see that you're inspired by us because the year before, the Iron Pigs had done their bacon jerseys. That's true. And their bacon hats. So that is true. The Iron Pigs go full on with the food, with the bacon stuff. The they went Grizzlies, with like a food item. Yeah, and it, then the Grizzlies moved it to like a meal. And a now meal and, and something counter. celebrating the regional heritage. Yeah. yeah. And, now, <laughs> and now the Iron Pigs have said, all right, we did food first. You guys did the regional heritage angle, and now we're going to do that ourselves. So I think it's like any uh, good creative rivalry is just uh, you need that other person to spur you on to greater heights. So Fresno and Lehigh Valley definitely playing off one another. And uh, the Lehigh Valley Cheesesteaks promo is certainly now one of the premier events on the 2016 minor league baseball promotional calendar. I'm just going to interject real quick, Sam. One thing that fascinates me as a a nerd in these things, these are Majestic-made uniforms. Majestic's the official MLB uniform provider, but Majestic is generally pretty buttoned up. I mean, it's a real classy look from Majestic, everything that they make. Uh, So to go the cheesesteaks route, I mean, ordinarily we see these promotional jerseys are made by the promotional companies. OT Sports has a big hand in that. We see them from other companies, but Majestic... Majestic stepping in and making these and with the new era hats. This is a very legit look. Right, but they're still button up, Tyler, because they're jerseys. Oh, wow. that's a good point. <laughs> we didn't even we didn't work that out before. That was just that was classic Benjamin Hill. That was nice work. Thank you, thank you. I pride myself <laughs> on these things. Take it away, Sam. Well, yeah, well what I was gonna ask is is this becoming like an East Coast, West Coast rivalry between Fresno? Does Fresno now throw down its own gauntlet? Or is this going to be something that we're going to see? Is this a Biggie and Tupac thing? Yeah, or is it going to explode across the minors? I think you tweeted it the other day, Tyler, saying, you know, Colorado Springs, if you want to do Rocky Mountain Oyster Night. Absolutely. You're more than welcome to it now. What what do you think is going to be the trend of this? I think some other team has to pick up on that. And I I, uh, played around with that on Twitter yesterday, um, suggesting other regional items throughout the country that could become – 
minor league promotions and special theme jerseys and one day identities and that kind of thing. Rocky Mountain, Rocky Mountain Oysters. I mean, I'm sure Colorado Springs would have a ball with that, but I, I don't know how well that would go. Um, I think I suggested uh, Cedar Rapids pork tenderloins, you know, the, that famous Midwest sandwich. Um, I think some team in the Northeast has to do Scrapple. I mean, if you're going to do cheesesteaks in Lehigh Valley, someone's got to jump up on the Scrapple thing. Um, you just have to look around the nation and, and say, what's the regional cuisine? And could we get a lot of play by becoming that cuisine for one day? Albuquerque's got green chili. Uh, Omaha's got Runza's. Uh, somebody in Michigan should do, uh, what are those things called? Poonchkis, which are like the donuts. Oh, yeah. Oh man. We could do, we could do the entire, we'll just do one three hour show in which we dissect every <laughs> single, uh, Vancouver Canadians get poutine. Everybody's got their thing. Um, but Ben, this is, I mean, obviously because there's so much, uh, that came out of the bacon thing two years ago for Lehigh Valley the tacos thing last year for Fresno. The really neat thing about this is the way that it connects with fans. And two years ago, there was a good push by Lehigh Valley when they did the smell, the change campaign to really draw in fan involvement. Now they're doing that with this idea of the vote of wit or without onions. First of all, who's voting without second of all, um, how big of a step forward is that in the way that these promos go when it's not just we're doing something wacky, but we're also doing something wacky and you can be a part of it. Yeah, because I think what do people get more passionate about as uh, regards their regional preferences and regional loyalties than sports and food? I mean, really, those are the two things people get um, argumentative about most likely when it comes to their specific region. So to combine the two is really a great idea. And it's something that people enjoy arguing about and everyone's going to have an opinion and I agree with you. If if without wins this thing, I mean, I just don't get it. It's the upset. It's the same way I feel about Donald Trump. Like, how would without? There's no way. There's no way <laughs> without's getting the votes, right? Yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden we're having a brokered convention to get wit back in. <laughs> a brokered onion convention. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I paid, well, I paid while we're settling upset. debates, though, you're you're a Philly guy. Pats or Geno's? Um, you know what? I never really developed a loyalty for either i liked gyms and ironically i really started are they all named after guys it's <laughs> like every philly cheese take place just a guy's first name in philly that is a common theme for sure <laughs> um i really started to like cheesesteaks i moved i grew up in the philadelphia area and i went to college in pittsburgh where there's not really any cheesesteaks but then i really started to crave them ironically enough once i got to new york city and there's a place in the east village called 99 miles of philly which is fantastic which i just love better loved. than shorties shorties is great too and there's uh yeah shorties in new york city as well so you really do have good cheesesteak options in new york city now i got to try and, that one you know then i got of- diagnosed with celiac disease and i'm not supposed to eat uh you know rolls <laughs> bread so that's tough but i still crave cheesesteaks you know put them on nachos put them on fries just uh, I, I and you know dealing with cheesesteaks in my professional realm the last couple of days have really gotten me thinking how much I miss a good cheesesteak that's for sure we should also probably have a bracket at some point of the best food items in minor league baseball and a lot of contenders would be there for cheesesteaks I'm sure the Lehigh Valley Iron Picks have a good one uh, one of the really underrated great cheesesteaks was in Kinston North Carolina with the Kinston Indians but if you want uh, an under-the-radar good minor league cheesesteak, the Wilmington Blue Rocks have a phenomenal – they're only like 40 minutes from Philadelphia. If you're in the Philly area and you think, I could go for a cheesesteak in a non-traditional setting, go check out a Wilmington Blue Rocks game. Get yourself a cheesesteak. All right. People wake up all the time and they're craving non-traditional setting cheesesteaks. <laughs> exactly. So thanks, thanks for the tip. 
Then let's move along to a uh, another week full of ballpark drama, it seems like. Uh, let's start with the non-dramatic thing. There was for a long time a lot of drama surrounding the Binghamton Mets. That no longer is the case. There was a time where it looked like the Binghamton Mets AA affiliation was going to be moved out of Binghamton, maybe going to Wilmington. That's right on cue. Binghamton maybe was going to move into the New York Penn League. That all has been settled. Binghamton staying in the Eastern League. But one of the minor leagues, um, I'll go ahead and say it, one of the most outdated logos in the minor leagues looks like it's going away. The Binghamton Mets will no longer be the Binghamton Mets. Uh, and this is something that is also going to involve a lot of fan discussion and involvement going forward. Yeah, well, you mentioned the Binghamton Mets possibly leaving the Eastern League. That is in one way, one sh- way, shape, or form or another. For the last half decade, there's been rumors regarding Binghamton leaving. Um, they were tied in with rumors of going to Ottawa a few years ago, and that fell through. And the reason for that is the reason you always hear relocation rumors. Uh, the attendance hasn't been there. They have been, I think, for the last five or six years running, uh, last in the Eastern League in attendance. A lot of people have said maybe this is better served as a short season market. Um, so a lot of speculation. But the team was sold uh, to a new owner, and uh, John Hughes, and he right away said, you know, I'm, I'm reaffirming my commitment to Binghamton and double-A baseball in Binghamton. And part of that commitment is a, uh, a whole plethora of stadium improvements as well as a rebranding. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean the Mets affiliation is going anywhere by any means. But just the minor league baseball trend is if people want Mets gear, they're probably going to buy New York Mets gear and not buy them through the Binghamton Mets. How do you create more excitement for your brand, create merchandise sales? You have your own identity. So tied in with this uh, reaffirmation of a commitment to the Binghamton market, the B-Mets are in their last year as the Mets, and in 2017 we'll have a new identity. What that is remains to be seen. They're now having a Name the Team contest right now. I'm not sure if it's one of those Name the Team contests in which teams solicit suggestions while they already have the name picked secretly, but hey, I don't know. But uh, there's you know a lot of suggestions coming through the pike. Um, talking about the food uh, suggestions, you know, you could be the Binghamton Speedies. That's a uh, definitely a regional delicacy. It's basically uh, nice marinated cubes of meat on bread. Um, huh. Yeah, look it up. Speedy, S P I E D I E. It's okay. uh, very much associated with Binghamton, and I think they have them in Tri City too, who are uh, you know based in uh, Troy, New York, not too far away. This looks phenomenal. Yeah, man, you, you're quick on the speedy. All <laughs> I'm right there in the Google. You could say you're a speedy. It all falls into place so beautifully. Yeah. But anyway, Binghamton Mets, no longer going to be the Mets, but they are going to be an Eastern League team. Uh, new identity coming in 2017. Uh, I threw the question out on Twitter the other day, what should Binghamton be called in lieu of the Mets? And I think the most common response I got was maybe predictably the triplets, um, which was the name of the team you know, going back decades in the 40s and 50s. And uh, Sam and I actually looked that up because we were like, why is Binghamton the triplets? And that was actually a uh, a Tri-Cities uh, type of reference in which triplets referenced three cities in the area, Binghamton, of course, being one of them, and the others being Johnson City and Endicott. So impress your friends. When the Binghamton triplets were the triplets that represented Binghamton, Johnson City, and Endicott. One of the things you can do for a ton of fun if you're bored one day at work is go to Baseball Reference and you can search by any city 
uh, their professional baseball history. So, yeah, the Binghamton Mets name dates back to 1992. From 1968 to 1992, between those years, there was no minor league baseball in Binghamton, uh, but it was the triplets uh, starting in 1923 until 1968. But before that, it was the Binghamton Bingos, which I would be down with. And before that, it was the Binghamton Crickets, also a good contender. Crickets, there's just too many obvious jokes about low attendance, and that's what you're going to be hearing. Ah, that's a good point. That's why the they pay the big bucks. In there. Yeah, it's another bug team. We have too many bug teams. You're not up but, on the bug teams? I don't like them. What, what, <laughs> what would a bingo look like? I don't know. Is that like a – you think it's a target? I mean, obviously, it's a nickname for the city, but you think you go with a target there for the logo? I don't know, but there'd have to be some uh, complimentary seating in the stadium, a uh, free space. Uh, yeah. <laughs> ah, let's go west. California <laughs> is the destination. Uh, the High Desert Mavericks, Ben, have started to be embroiled in what kind of quietly started as a feud between the city and ownership of the Class A advanced affiliate of the Texas Rangers, and now is really starting to billow uh, into something to keep an eye on. This situation has gotten a lot louder, really, especially over the last week or so. Take us through the parameters of what's going on with High Desert. Yeah, this is a strange situation. The High Desert Mavericks, who play in the city of Adelanto, California, um, they have a lease uh, for the use of their stadium with the city who owns the stadium, uh, Stater Brothers Stadium. Um, They have a lease for a dollar a year, and that's good for the 2016 season as well. Clearly a good deal for the club, but a legally binding contract that they sign with the city. And the city is now saying that this lease is in violation of the state constitution and the Mavericks should pay more money. And if they don't, they will be evicted from the stadium. And this tough talk is continuing here all the way up, you know, practically two weeks before the start of the season. And, uh, if somehow the city is successful in getting the Mavericks out of the stadium, there's no contingency plan that could be created outside of forcing the Mavericks to play on the road, which would be disastrous for, every other team in the California league and not to mention the players. And I'm sure the Texas Rangers, the parent club would be uh, less than pleased about that. It seems very unlikely that that would happen. Dave Heller, the owner of the Mavericks said it's a zero concern. Uh, California league president, Charlie Blaney said, you know, there's no contingency plans in place. We're going to expect this to work itself out. Um, You know, the city is playing hardball, so to speak. Um, They might have a good point in the general larger sense of things that, um, Maybe the team could pay more, but they don't, as far as I can get in terms of uh, analyzing the situation, I don't see what their case is. The city council is the one who signed the lease with the team to begin with, and it runs into the season. So to say this agreement we literally agreed to is no longer binding, um, I, don't, I don't see how that holds up in court. I mean, I'm, a, I'm no legal expert, but I think they're just playing hardball and really trying to make their case that they're not happy with it. It brings up the larger question of, High Desert has not drawn well for a long time, and with all this turmoil on top of a low-attendance team, is how much longer can minor league baseball survive in High Desert? And that's a question maybe for another day, but this seems to just be, uh, no matter how it plays out, it seems to be speeding uh, High Desert's exit from the minor league landscape because this is not conditions in which a team can operate. Yeah, we've talked in the past kind of about it what could potentially be shifting around. And I, I, I remember the Rangers potentially moving, you know, their class A advantage. How much would this kind of push things 
forward or if if things go well for high desert maybe they just stay there because the lease is so low well pure speculation at this point but if you get out of high desert where do you go there's no other market in california to move into um because there's not money for facilities and there's no pre-existing facility up to professional standards it just you know jaunt right into so it definitely reheats the long simmering uh, two teams in the California League going over to the Carolina League argument. And uh, Kinston is one of those markets that at least temporarily could take on a Cal League team or a, a Class A advanced franchise uh, because they have Granger Stadium, which hosted Carolina League baseballs recently is, what, three, four years ago? Yeah, 2011. Yeah, 2011. So it, it remains to be seen how this is going to play out. But I, I think that Hopefully the Mavericks get this season situation resolved, but I expect we're going to hear a lot of uh, a lot more rumblings from that direction in terms of all right, how do we get out of here? Kinson was in the plans in that Binghamton um, discussion as well as recently as this past summer. It looked as if Binghamton's AA affiliation would go to Wilmington, Delaware, and the high A affiliation from Wilmington would go to Kinston. And the major league team that was involved in all that was the Texas Rangers. The Rangers have been pretty committed to trying to get into Kinston somehow, refurbish Granger Stadium, and make that their hub with a team-owned Carolina League affiliate. So... Keep an eye on this discussion. And just as a little sidebar to this, uh, to show you how quickly things change, this is an article from the Los Angeles Times from April 24th of 1991. And it says in part, quote, by general acclamation, the hero of opening night was Mel Yarmat, an Apple Valley real estate agent who contacted the Bretts, who were the previous ownership family. Uh, actually, George Brett's brother was uh, – at the first at the outset of the high desert Mavericks history, he was team president uh, and enticed them to relocate in Adelanto. A team moved from Riverside, California, where they were known as the red wave uh, continuing quote. He's seen as the man who gave high desert residents something to do with their summer evenings. And then his quote is the city of Adelanto won't make any money on this, but what it does for the high desert community is immeasurable. It's really a big deal here. You have 225,000 people with really very little to do just two movie theaters and a shopping mall. That was only 25 years ago, and now all of a sudden, and that's at the outset. That's the very first story about this ballpark and about this team, and that quote starts off with, the city of Atalanta won't make any money on this. So this is a longstanding situation that now has gotten so much more complicated in recent years, so definitely something to keep your eye on. Yeah, and there's been a larger economic downturn in that whole region, so yeah, what was justifiable then is not justifiable to the city now, but uh Again, it's a legally binding agreement, and I think the Mavericks have a really good case that this is our lease. You, you can't change that. And it's interesting to note um, that Dave Heller, who owns the Mavericks, he was someone who wanted to buy the Binghamton Mets, moved them to Wilmington, who Dave Heller also owns, and then he'd moved the Wilmington Carolina League designation to Kinston, and that would host the Class A Advanced Texas Rangers affiliate, who are – Currently, the High Desert Mavericks. Try to figure that out, but it all makes sense. <laughs> and the Bakersfield Blaze, I believe, were purchased by uh, a Carolina League owner as well. Is that right? Was it Bakersfield Lynchburg's ownership group bought? Uh, the Elmore group. I, I cannot. Yes, yes. Lynchburg and um, 
Bakersfield, I believe, are, are under the same ownership group. Yes. So there are a couple of ownership groups that now have a vested interest maybe in the Carolina League. So just something to keep an eye on. That conversation has been going on for years, probably way before any of us started working in minor league baseball, uh, about the the concept of maybe the Carolina League being better suited for an additional two teams to uh, to pull out of the California League. So keep an eye on that. Ben, uh, I know it's road trip planning time. What uh, What's the status on that? You know, I'm really every week I'm like, oh, I'm working on it. I'm really uh, putting putting the pen to the paper right now and uh, trying to figure it all out. And um, so it's really, really starting to come together. Um, haven't figured out the itineraries, not ready to announce them yet, but uh, really hoping to hit some Appley teams because that's a, an underexplored circuit for me. I uh, would like to make it out west. There are some teams in California uh, that I have not yet been to and others that I haven't been to for about five years. New ballparks in Columbia, you know, that, that, that could spur a Carolina trip. And, of course, Hartford, got to make it up there. And um, that, that might tie into a visit to uh, the aforementioned Wilmington Blue Rocks, uh, home of the non-traditional setting cheesesteak. <laughs> That's how they should put it on the menu from now on, your non-traditional setting cheesesteak. Now I really want a cheesesteak, by the way, at the end of this interview. It's yeah, we'll, we'll get off your barrier <laughs> and get one. Benjamin Hills on Twitter. You can find him there. He's at Ben's Biz. And last week we teased our teased our minor league jingle show, uh, minor league team song show. Ben and I are compiling that. We're going to record early next week, so be on the lookout for a special edition of the show before the show. And uh, we'll be tying that through throughout the uh, the 2016 season as well. So until early next week, when you get to hear the dulcet tones of Benjamin Hill breaking down some of the greatest tunes in all minor league baseball. Ben, enjoy the weekend. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the milled team thong- team team thongs. Oh, no. team theme Cisco. Song. Uh, Cisco episode. will be making an appearance. It's it's coming soon. And and I don't like to point out my own bad jokes, but in the beginning of this conversation, you talked about breaking barriers, and I just recently told you to get off your barriere. Oh, I thought you said derriere. And I said barriere. It was, it's, it's what we call it was a, a callback. Call it's a callback. Here here in the biz, we call that a callback. That was some solid work. It's a very solid word. I have a sickness. <laughs> and you can find it all at bensbiz.mlblogs.com. That's right. Get sick with me. Big thanks to Rachel Balkovic of the Houston Astros. Big thanks to Benjamin Hill, our very own. You can, again, find Ben. He is on Twitter at Ben's Biz. And uh, that Adelanto story is interesting. Keep an eye on that because that's going to be one to watch going uh, toward opening day in the California League. And, uh, yeah, it's, you know, that situation is uh, one that I think will have some ramifications along the lines of what we discussed last week with a new facility going up in the Florida state league, some very good and vacant facilities in the Carolina league. You know, they're going to be 30 high a affiliates. You just don't know where they're going to be five years from now. So keep an eye on that. Cause maybe your favorite team, your favorite city will be uh, the new home of a minor league baseball team at some point down the road. So big thanks to Ben for uh, enlightening us on that subject. And that's going to, almost wrap us up for this week's edition of the show before the show podcast which again you can find on itunes where there is the minor league baseball podcast and you can find us on milb.com slash podcast as well big week coming up next week sam prospect primers getting started finally have you wrapped up all your interviews for prospect primers yeah i, I got ah, look at you i know i did all those when i was in the spring training same here I, nice. I was lucky to uh we coordinated that effort, so I made sure the camps I was going to were the ones I was going to do primers on. So there's a lot of uh, decent information that I'm kind of just sitting on, um, haven't written about yet, that that you'll everybody will be able to 
find in the prospect primers start starting out next week and uh, taking us right into opening day. So I have the Astros, Phillies, Braves, and Red Sox, I believe. Um, there might be another one in there that I'm forgetting, but I know those ones, four ones for sure, um, which are all fun pro- prospect systems to uh, write about and uh, lots of lots of good guys and interesting tidbits to throw in there. So uh, won't tease it too much, but uh, it, that's that's when we know opening day is around the corner on our end is when the prospect primers start and we're officially in that part of the year. I have Angels, Cubs, Giants, and Rockies, so I have – one of those top-level teams in the Rockies, one of the mid-tier teams in the Cubs. Kind of a question mark organization in the Giants who are really proud of the talent they have. And then the team that comes in ranked number 30 but had a story up on the site last week is really high on their talent. That's the Angels. So, yeah, it gives us a really good snapshot kind of across the spectrum of uh, all 30 organizations in Major League Baseball. We're going to roll them out by division this year. So keep an eye out for those starting on Monday, the 28th of March. And uh, then the following week, actual live baseball games. Ridiculous. I know. Won't that be fun? It's going to be then, amazing. Then we don't have to worry about spring training stats. That's true. Then we, we can just say stats where we can say like, no, pay attention to these stats. Yeah. These ones mean something. These actually mean something that we're going up against, you know, players or hitters are going up against pitchers of their own level of what's supposed to be their own skill set. Um, everybody's going to be where they're supposed to be. It's not, you know, is this person being challenged enough is you know, whatever it, it it's just going to be, good old-fashioned baseball and that's gonna be i'm so excited for that finally finally get behind sam he's on twitter at sam dykstra m-i-l-b i'm on twitter i'm at tyler mon and that'll do it for the 51st edition of the show before the show podcast we will talk to you guys one week away from opening day coming up next week